<clears throat> I told you last week that we're going to go back to uh, verse 15. And so uh, verse 15 reads, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he, uh, because he was before me. Then down at 8, 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then... Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. And may it be the Word that we remember this morning, that we might hold the living Word, Jesus, in high esteem, growing in our delight and satisfaction in Him. Grant us a hunger for that which endures, lessening our desire for that which withers, fades, and matters little. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the enduring and eternal Word who became flesh for us and for our salvation. One of the joys of what happens when I have to prepare a sermon before presbytery is that I usually finish my, my, most of my work early. And so I had actually written the sermon, and then I said, oh yeah, I forgot to uh, read Sproul on this thing, so uh, I went back that evening on my, my one ebook. I have one. <laughs> so I went back and looked at Sproul's, and, and lo and behold, R.C. Sproul had the same title for that chapter that I had for my sermon. <laughs> Who are you? But I have to wonder if R.C. heard Roger Daltrey's voice <laughs> in the back of his head whenever he thought of that. I did. Maybe that speaks poorly of me, but nonetheless. You know, beginning back, as I mentioned earlier this morning, in Babel, people have had a problem. And that problem is seeking to make a name for themselves. People wanting glory that they have established for themselves. 
We can see this uh, most easily, I think, when it comes to sports figures. Uh, many of you may have heard this week about the interview that Robert uh, Sherman, who plays cornerback for the Seahawks, gave to the, the uh, sideline reporter Aaron Andrews after defeating uh, the 49ers this year <clears throat> in the national uh, NFC championship game. Among the things he said were, I am the best corner in football. When asked to testify about himself, so to speak, he said something that sounded remarkably like Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. Success tends to go to some people's heads. They seem to forget that they do things, one, of course, within the providence of God and the gifts of God. But also, usually, like in football, it's a team sport. One guy doesn't win or lose a game for a team. It's a whole team. So there are some athletes who handle success very well. They mentioned, you know, we played hard as a team, we won as a team, we, lo we lost as a team. But sometimes success goes to people's heads. I was listening this morning to an interview on ESPN on my way here, and Peter King, who writes for Sports Illustrated, talked about <clears throat> this particular instance with Robert Sherman, and he brought up what happened with Deion Sanders, who invented the term prime time, wanting to try to find a way, and, and he said that, Dion was very, very uh, conscious of this, whereas Robert Sherman might not be, but recognizing that in order to make money playing these sports, I need to have a brand. I need to have something that draws attention to me so that people see my talent and gifts and abilities. And so he developed the whole persona of prime time. And so some of these guys, this is their moment, I want to get paid, I have to talk about me. <clears throat> John the Baptist was very different, as we're going to see as we walk through this text this morning. The big idea that I have for us is that the gospel messengers seek Christ's glory, not their own. And so this is not just about John, who, who comes before Jesus, but it's also those who come after Jesus who seek to make his name known. We could learn from John the Baptist in how he seeks to do these things. Let's start with verse 15, with the idea that gospel messengers seek no glory for self. John was a popular figure. Many Jews would leave the cities and flood out across the Jordan, as we see at the end of this, pa this passage. They would go out into the wilderness, across the Jordan, <clears throat> to the place where he was baptizing. They would hear him preach. And so there are many people who, who did this. And it's not, it's not surprising when you remember the fact that for 400 years, God had essentially been silent. Malachi was the, was the last prophet of the Old Testament, over 400 years earlier. And since then, people had waited for a word for God. And there had been, of course, there had been some false prophets that had arisen. But... Here was one that was different, so to speak. Though he was from a priestly family, his father, in fact, when finding about, but, about the fact that he would have a child, was serving as the high priest for that year, had been into the Holy of Holies. He comes from a priestly family, and yet he looks nothing like someone who would come from a priestly family. He's very austere and living out in the wilderness for who knows how long. <coughs> 
And so the people would go out and flock to him. And it wasn't just the Jewish people. R.C. Sproul notes that um, among the secular historians of the day, they said far more about John the Baptist than Jesus. And so John is a popular guy. Would the success, would the audience go to his head? We see here that John cries out in the wilderness, which, which can mean to shout, to scream, to shriek. He was not Joel Osteen. He was not very mild-mannered. He was not soft-spoken. John, I'll think everything about him was sort of loud and in your face. Particularly when you hear about the message that he often preached. It was one of judgment that was to come. It was not a happy message. He was the antithesis of Joel Osteen. He screamed. He gathered attention because he had an important message. Not because he was or viewed himself as an important person. John spoke about the only son or the only begotten. We're not, not really sure about how much John got of who Jesus really was. He understood some of it from what we see here, but we also recognize that moms talk. Remember that Mary and Elizabeth uh, had a powwow after uh, the angel came to visit Mary and had told her that Elizabeth also was with child. And so we're not sure exactly what he knew beyond what it says he knew here in the Scriptures. But John said that there is one who comes after me. He would come after him with respect to time. And what's interesting, uh, particularly about the the Jewish people of that time and uh, many generations uh, as well after that, is that people have traditionally prized that which was older. The established traditions, the established teachers and leaders, It was a very different mindset than what we have today. And and some of what we have today is a result of technology, I think, the influence of technology upon our thinking. Because what comes out technologically with newer tends to be better. And so, you know, we have people lining up outside the Apple store every time a new Apple phone is about to be released. Newer, better. Newer, better. That's our mantra. For them, newer was badder. Not better, badder. It was not as good. And so, John notes that the one who comes after me, the one who's going to be newer than me, he is the one who is greater than me, precisely because he was before me. Jesus ranks before John. He exceeds John in prominence. Okay? And so here we see that John is not engaging in self-promotion. He is engaging in Christ promotion. When I was looking for a job in what seems like many, many, many years ago, and I hope not to go through that again anytime soon, um, I kept hearing at, at these job fairs and things about the need to promote yourself, to sell yourself. And there was something that in light of, you know, pastoral calling really seemed to rub me the wrong way. Because it's really not supposed to be about me. John did not see this as about him. There were people there. They were there to listen to him, but he was not going to speak about himself. Jesus was more prominent than John 
from the eyes of God precisely because Jesus was before me, he says. And he utilizes the same verb that John the Apostle uses in verse 1 of this Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so, whether he realizes it or not, he's hearkening back to the reality that Jesus existed eternally, but John did not. And so he's greater than John precisely because he has always been, has always been in the lap or the bosom of the Father. And so while John draws people's attention, he did consistently point them to the one who was to come instead of pointing them to himself. He knew that he was merely temporary, but that Jesus was eternal and therefore eternally significant. And so as people who are called to make Jesus known, we are to seek no glory for ourselves. Secondly, as we move to verses 19 through 23, <clears throat> let us see that gospel messengers fulfill the role appointed for them. That's how John understood himself, fulfilling the role that had been appointed for him. And we see that now controversy begins to erupt in verse 19. It was because of his popularity that the leaders in Jerusalem, what is meant by that phrase, the Jews, <clears throat> sent priests and Levites to question him. And this was not sort of, you know, uh, when you meet a new, new person and you want to sit down over a little cup of coffee and get to them a little bit and you ask them some nice little questions. This was not what it was. The word for question can also mean to interrogate. And they are essentially here interrogating John. Now, they weren't using enhanced interrogation methods by any stretch of the imagination, but still, it's a little intimidating, isn't it? You know, to have the, the priests and the Levites Knock it on your door. Well, of course, he didn't have a door. He lived in the wilderness. But you understand. You know, they've shown up. If, you know, if imagine for a moment if I'm here and the representatives of Presbytery show up. Or a couple of big denominational bigwiggy guys showed up. Uh-oh. <laughs> this might not be good for me. <laughs> okay? John was probably concerned about their presence at this moment. They're going to examine him. They wanted to know, who are you? And first off, they come out and say, are you the Christ or the Messiah? Now, obviously, as you might expect, 400 years of silence, they've been longing for the appearance of the promised Messiah. They didn't quite understand everything that this Messiah was, but they knew they wanted him to come. There were problems that were there. You had uh, you know, Rome kind of riding roughshod over Israel. Not only that, that political aspect, but you had sort of some apathy amongst large parts of the Jewish population. There were things for Messiah to come and fix. They longed for Messiah, and they're wondering, John, are you it? Are you the one we've been waiting for? To which John, as clearly and as emphatically as he possibly can, says... I am not the Messiah. John the Baptist and John the Apostle 
use this, this to kind of emphasize this. We've got to make sure we get this right. He's not the Messiah. John's testimony in this regard was clear. It would be consistent. It would be honest. And it would be humble. I am not the one you're looking for. So they say, all right, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? <clears throat> the one who was said in Malachi, the very, very last chapter of the very last book, or the very last prophet of the Old Testament, are, are you Elijah, the one that we are expecting, who is going to come and prepare the way of the Lord? Is that who you are? His answer gets shorter. I am not. Emphasis on I am not. Okay. Their expectation comes from Malachi 4, as I mentioned, but also Malachi 3. In Malachi 3, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so here in Malachi 3, we see two things. He's sending a messenger that's going to prepare a way for someone, their God. Their God was going to suddenly appear, it says, at the temple. And so uh, this messenger was to announce the coming of their God. Now, I don't think they quite got all that that meant with in, term, in terms of an incarnation. Nonetheless, we see that this person is identified in chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so they're anticipating Elijah, but now many of them had taken this in a very literal way. Remember, who were the two people who didn't die in the Old Testament? Yeah, Enoch way back before the flood. And Elijah. Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in chariots of fire. But while uh, Elisha watched, okay, having received the, the mantle from Elijah. And so some of them anticipated either a, a physical return of the same person or something along the lines of not, not quite reincarnation, but, but someone who was Elijah, the, the spirit of Elijah himself upon this person. And so when they're asking, are you Elijah, it's in a very literal sense. And John replies again, no. But here we have a problem. Mark 9. Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. And of course, Jesus is speaking of John the baptizer. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking here figuratively. As we see in Luke chapter 1, it says this, speaking of John the baptizer, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so Luke 1 quotes from Malachi, adding that aspect uh, that's also there in Malachi, of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. And he's, But he says this, he's not literally Elijah, but he goes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so Jesus is 
is just like Luke 1, speaking of, of John the baptizer figuratively as Elijah. He has the same spirit. He has the same power as a prophet as Elijah. And so John did not lie. He was answering the question, I believe, in accordance with the understanding of the Levites and the priests that were before him. John's frustration with them is growing as they ask each question. Because it's as if they don't believe him because they kind of keep going on. I'm sure they didn't ask him, you know, only one time, are you the Christ? They kind of probably most likely kept pressing him. We've, they've kind of condensed this interrogation down. His answers are getting shorter. And so they ask, are you the prophet? Referring to the prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18 by Moses. Remember the context that Mike read. The people were afraid of the voice of God. And so they asked Moses to listen to the voice of God for them and to speak to them on God's behalf. And so Moses says that there will be another prophet like me. He will hear from God. He will speak to you. And so they were anticipating another great prophet like Moses, who was in a sense a redeemer, a mediator, beyond you know what Elijah would have been in terms of his work. There was this anticipation, and so they're asking, uh, are you that guy? Because you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? And he says, no. And they're frustrated. John's frustrated. They're frustrated. I'm sure this is getting to be a very sort of a high-tension sort of meeting that's taking place right now, <clears throat> because it mentions here in the text, <clears throat> they're saying, we have to report back. What are we supposed to say? And so it goes, who are you? If you're not these people, who in the world are you? And John says that he is the messenger of comfort that was spoken of in Isaiah 40. He is the voice of one crying Similar to the same word that we found in verse 15. This, this has this idea of a tumultuous voice that's being raised. He's crying in the wilderness, commanding the people to prepare or clear the path for Jesus. Providentially, this week in my personal devotions, I read Isaiah 40. And it's fascinating when you think about all of this. You know, is, is it, he refers to this, he, he only quotes a little bit of it, but as you go farther, you see a couple other things that kind of take place. And one is that infamous, pat, not infamous, it's famous. Unless you want to say infamous means more than famous. <clears throat> I got lost in, in, in a movie for a moment. People are like grass, Isaiah says. The grass withers, flowers fade. But the word of the Lord endures forever. John, the voice who's crying in the wilderness, is like all flesh. He's going to wither. He's going to fade. But the one about whom he speaks, the living word of God, he is the one who's going to endure forever. John recognizes that he will fade. He will decrease. Jesus must increase. He understands this because he sees himself as that voice crying in the wilderness. Not only that, but 
it says there in uh, Exodus, not Exodus, Isaiah 40, go up on a high, to a high mountain on Zion, herald of good news. Okay, so speaking of the messenger, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. <clears throat> for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And so he's declaring the coming of the king, of the eternal king, the God who is going to make all things right. The God who is coming, as it says later in that passage, to shepherd his people, to hold them as though they are little lambs. This is the one that matters, not John himself. He knew that he would fade. Though he was popular at that moment, he would wither and fade. I'm reminded for some reason, I don't know exactly why, but of Billy Sunday. That name might be familiar to some of you, but perhaps not to all of you. In his day, Billy Sunday was a very popular evangelist. He was an ex-baseball player. And he kind of, uh, you know, moved toward the spectacular to try and draw large crowds. And, and he would, like, you know, run and slide like he was going into home plate uh, during his evangelistic meetings. <clears throat> Most people don't know of Billy Sunday today. He, he has faded in our corporate memory. What matters is the Christ that Billy Sunday preached. Just as it was the Christ that John the Baptist preached, the Christ that you and I are called to preach, because we too have been appointed a role, a time perhaps, uh, when we make Jesus known to family or to the other loved ones or to neighbors or friends. There may be an appointed time. But we recognize that we fade while he increases. Jesus the living Word of God endures forever. John's role, while important, was temporary. Our role, whatever it may be, though important, is temporary. And so appointed to make Jesus known, I ask you to fulfill your role in the power of the Spirit, just as John did. Third, from uh, verses 24 through 28, <clears throat> Gospel messengers exalt Christ exclusively. Now, these men who had come to interrogate him, and we see as well that uh, they came from the Pharisees, and so we're not sure if this is a different day or not. A different uh, event or the same event continued. Uh, John the Apostle is a little unclear in that. But these people apparently missed his point because they continue to, to question him or they've come back to question him further. And their, their question has to do with baptism. Okay, if, if you're not the Christ, if you're not the prophet, if you're not Elijah, who are you to baptize? Why do you baptize you don't have authority like those guys, so what are you doing here out in the wilderness? This is important for a couple of different reasons. Baptism as a rite of purification 
uh, developed during the those 400 years between Malachi and the time of Jesus. But it wasn't for Jews. It was for Gentile believers. People who had converted to Judaism. The, the men in the family would undergo circumcision, and all the boys would undergo circumcision. But both male and female, they would undergo this uh, baptism or washing of purification, which is uh, a little similar to what we find in Leviticus, but it's not the same thing. <clears throat> What's interesting is that they wouldn't go to a priest to bathe them. You would go bathe yourself. So it was sort of a self-administered uh, purification bath. Okay, And what it re- represented was that you were being washed of the pollution of the world in which you had lived. So, bath of cleansing. But it was, remember, it was for Gentile converts, not for Jews. Now, among the, the, uh, the extreme uh, sect of Judaism called the Essenes, you may have heard about them before, maybe not. It's not all that important. But they were a, a group of <clears throat> very devout Jews who were very much taken up with the idea that Messiah is coming. They lived kind of separated from everybody else. And one of the things that they did is they practiced daily washings or baptisms. So they were the only Jews that kind of practiced this idea of daily that. But it was not a one-time thing. It was a repeated thing every day because they recognized that uh, they were polluted by the world <clears throat> each day. And so this is a question, you know, I, John... Are you one of those guys? What's going on here? Because John's baptism was radical. It doesn't say so here, but we see like the passages like Matthew 1, that it was radical because he was calling Jews, not Gentiles, Jews to repent of their sins and be washed of their pollution. And that was offensive, as you might imagine, to many Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. John was asking them to humble themselves in the sight of God to recognize uh, that they too were sinners like the Gentiles. And some embraced that idea and were baptized, and some, like these you know, representatives of the people in Jerusalem, weren't so wild about that idea. It offended their religious pride. John begins to answer, I baptize with water. And if you're familiar with the Scriptures and you're familiar with what John has said, your mind probably automatically goes to, and there is one coming who will baptize with fire. That's not where John goes this time. He kind of goes in this almost completely different direction. Sort of probably surprising them in some ways. He doesn't necessarily answer why, but he points them to the greatness of Jesus instead. And he points them to the greatness of Jesus in this really odd way. Precisely because they needed to focus their attention on the one who was to come, the one who had not yet been revealed but was about to be, the one who was not John. And he says, 
the one whose the thong of their sandal I'm not worthy to untie. <clears throat> when you were a disciple of a rabbi, you were essentially almost a slave to the rabbi. You would cook for them, you would clean for them, you'd clean up after them. Uh, you know, in addition to following them around and listening to their teaching, you would perform a lot of menial tasks for them. But there was one task that you were not to do. Only slaves could do it, or only slaves were required to, to do it, and that was to remove or untie someone's sandal. That <clears throat> was a task that was considered um, too lowly for the average person, even a disciple of a rabbi. The only person that it was not beneath was a slave. And here John says, I'm not worthy to do that. Instead of saying, I'm above doing that very menial task, he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. The most menial task you can think of for a slave, I'm not worthy to do for him. He was making much of Jesus. He wants them to focus on Jesus. In a sense, you're missing the point, guys, because you're spending all of your time for me, talking to me. I'm not the one you need to be talking to. I'm not the one whose identity you need to nail down because there's one coming after me who's far greater. He's the one you need to be looking for. I'm reminded of Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, which I like a lot. Couldn't find a good version of it on YouTube, YouTube to put it on our, our Facebook. But much of you. That was his mindset, similar to Stephen Curtis Chapman. I'm here to make much of this one who is to come, not much of myself. It's so contrary to the self-promotion of this age. But the gospel produces a humility in us because we recognize ourselves as sinners. Okay, and so there's a, there's a humility that comes with that. There's also a confidence that comes with the knowledge that though I, you know, I'm so bad Jesus had to die for me, as Tim Keller says, I am so loved by Jesus that he was willing and wanted to die for me. And so, in light of these things, there comes a humility that wants to draw the attention to Jesus, the one who died for sinners, as opposed to self one of the sinners for whom he died. John, again, pushes them to Jesus instead of calling them to himself to be his disciples as a rabbi. We're not worthy. Although I didn't like the movie, I probably didn't even see the whole movie. There's just one scene in Wayne's world, which was very popular when I was in seminary. And Wayne and his friend, I can't remember his friend's name because I don't care about the movie. But this stood out to me from what other people talking. They see Alice Cooper. And they bow down before him and say, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. 
ridiculous when talking about a washed-up rock star, isn't it? But we should be before the feet of Jesus. We're not worthy. But we're so thankful. And one way in which our gratitude reveals itself is in making him known to others. There are other ways as well, but that's one way. And so we see that success tends to inflate people's egos. They seek to make a name for themselves or to gain more attention. But those who seek to make Jesus known are concerned more about his name than they are their own. They remember that Jesus is eternal. He's unchanging. They remember that the role that God has assigned them, and they humbly make Jesus known to other people. They remember that they aren't worthy to serve Jesus in any way, but they serve by God's grace and God's mercy. And so saved by Jesus, they draw attention to Jesus as Savior. It's okay. Jesus won't get a big head. Because Jesus is, in fact, the greatest there ever was and there ever will be. The only wise God who is to be forever praised. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the greatness of Jesus. Not in a way that crushes us, but in a way that lifts us up. Help us to see the greatness of Jesus in such a way that we see Him as sufficient to save us, to deliver us, to equip us, to use us, so that we might praise Him and help others to praise Him. Help us to delight and rejoice in the greatness of Jesus, in the Jesus who is great. Open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that indeed we would see Him high and lifted up. That we would see Him great and magnified. That we would see Him as rich in mercy, abundant in grace, full of love, as well as justice. And we ask this in His name. Amen.